Hi, I'm Josh Van Berkel. Welcome to the Activate Christchurch podcast. It's our privilege to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you ever find yourself in Christchurch, pop in and say hello. We'd love to see you. So we are working on a series at the moment called What Is God Like? It's all based on this quote from A.W. Toads, which if you're a part of this church, you've heard me repeat ad nauseum over the last six weeks. And that is that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And we keep going back to this idea that each of us have deep, deep, deep inside of us a filter that we view life through, and it's a God filter. And every decision we make, every action we take, the beliefs that we have uh, all run through this filter. And of course, the actions that we take uh, build the life that we lead. And so it's not a stretch to say that the life you have right now is a direct reflection of the filter that you're carrying around God. Now, if you're not a Christian, your filter is God's not real. That's your filter. Those are the decisions that you make based on that. For us as Christians, it's not that God's not real. It's more what is God like, right? We've talked about this. Is he big? Is he small? Is he powerfully omnipotent? Or is he you know, minimally impotent? Is he kind? Is he unkind? Is he distant or is he close? These are all the things that we have to work through our God filter. And if we don't have an accurate idea of who God is, then perception is reality. And we will end up trying to connect with the God that we have, in fact, created up here. How many times have you heard somebody say, or even you yourself have said, I just can't see God doing that. I don't know if God would do that. I really struggle with the idea that God would do that. We say stuff like that all the time. What we mean is that I really struggle with the idea that the God that I understand would do something like that. Uh, And so we have to be very careful uh, around that. Now, we've been speaking over the last six weeks, different topics. Let's see if we can remember the six that we've got. So what was some of the God is what? What have we got? Throw something at me. Jealous. That's right. We talked about jealous, right? That God is jealous, not in an insecure way but in an aggressively protective kind of way, like a mother bear over her bear cubs. He's jealous for our time. He's jealous for our affection. He's jealous for our love. He guards us jealously. So what was that one, Amanda, that you said? Holy. That's right. God is holy. Right? That means morally set apart, like morally pure. That's right, Jackie, holy. Uh, and because God is holy, we are called to be holy as well. What's another one? Whoa, pick one. What have we got? Self-sufficient, that's right, God is, so Ash preached on that a couple of Sundays ago, God is self-sufficient, he doesn't need us, we come here, we worship him, you know, that doesn't sustain him, he's not like a a fairy that withers away if you don't believe in fairies, you know, like Peter Pan's story, like God is self-sufficient, but what I loved about what Ash brought was he said, hey look, God is so big, he's so powerful, and we are in relation to God so insignificant, so small. And when you realize that the chasm between who we are and who God is, like the writer of Psalms says that we're a vapor, like that's it, that's, we're gone, like that. And then you recognize that God you know, stepped into time, sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. That just blows your mind once you get a handle on how big and powerful God is and how, how he doesn't need us. So that's three. What else have we got? Yeah, God is good, that's right. Steve preached on God is good. Every good thing comes down from a heavenly father and lights. That's what the Bible says. Every good thing. That literally means that every good thing that has ever happened on the planet has come from God. If God wasn't real, if God didn't exist, there would be no goodness, no good things. It would just be misery upon misery. It would be like a fast that never ended. (sighs) You can tell that I'm pumped for this fast, man. It's going to be awesome. Because I was like, God, how much do I have to do? He's like, all seven days. (laughs) 
Um, what else? We've got four. God is truth. Yes, God is truth. I talked about that last Sunday, right? That God is truth. He's not just truthful. He's not just someone that can communicate or express truth. He is truth. And even though that might sound like semantics, it's actually an incredibly important theological distinction because if God and truth are two separate entities, it means in theory, God has the power to pick that up and put that down. God has to choose to express or communicate truth, which in theory would mean he could choose not to. But if God is truth, he cannot ever lie because that is impossible for him to do. And the writer of Hebrews said that in Hebrews 6, right? It is impossible for God to lie. So that's five. There's one more. Uh, God is a rewarder. That's right. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Michael, you've been taking notes. I can see you checking your notes. I would like to point out, Michael, as an example of what to do on a Sunday morning, right? Look, he was, he's up on stage. He's playing bass. He's serving. He's giving. And he gets down and he opens up his notebook and he's taking notes. It just makes me feel so important to see him writing stuff down that I say, right? I love that. Right? And then when I, I almost want to give you like a chocolate or something, Michael. Right? So God is a rewarder. And we looked at, let's see how good your notes are. We looked at four different translations of the Bible. And the four different translations translate that word diligently differently. Did you have them written down? Oh, look at that. Earnestly, sincerely, diligently, and passionately. Well done. All right. Michael is my favorite person in the whole church. Oh, apart from my wife. Whew. Yeah, but it's close, right? <laughs> so we've looked at all these different, these different aspects of God. And I said last Sunday, right, that I, I Googled all the different names for God in the Bible. And according to Google, there's just under 1,000, like 997, I think it was, which means if we were to look at a different name for God every Sunday, we'd be here for 20 years, which is a long time. Uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to wrap it up this morning. And, and I thought I have to speak on this. Right, if we're going to wrap up what God is like, I have to talk about the fact that God is love. Yes. yes. And this is exactly the same principle as God is truth from last week. God is not loving, like I'm loving. God is not someone that expresses or communicates love. He is love. Right? John, 1 John 4.16 says that God is love, and whoever lives in love, lives in God, and God in them, because God is love. So in the same way that God cannot tell a lie, it's impossible for God to lie because He is truth. It is impossible for God not to love you, right? Because He is love. He doesn't choose to love you, Sandra. He doesn't choose. I'm going to choose love. He cannot help Himself. It is who He is, Right? It is impossible for God not to love you. It's impossible for God not to believe in you. It's impossible for God not to want what is best for you. It's impossible for God to ever give up on you because it's who He is. Right? People say, is there anything that's impossible for God? You say, yes, it is impossible for God to act in a way that would make Him not God. Because if He acted that way, then He wouldn't be God. Makes sense, right? So, you know, and not only is it impossible for God to ever not love you, it's also impossible because He is love for that to increase or decrease. He can't love you any more and He can't love you any less because it is who He is. In the same way that I am Josh, 
right? And I wasn't less Josh yesterday, and I won't be more Josh tomorrow. Although, yeah, I did stand on the scales at the gym the other day, and I was definitely more Josh than I was like a month ago. <laughs> so that's probably not the best example. My, my goal this year was to lose 10 kilos, and I've only got 18 to go. So <laughs> I went to the gym on Friday, and some new guy came in, clearly a newbie, didn't know what he was doing. He put a water bottle in the Pringles holder on the treadmill. I was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you're just embarrassing yourself. No, just joking. I read this week that if you, if you like, weigh 100 kilos on Earth, that's only 38 kilos on Mars because the gravity's different. So I'm not overweight. I'm just on the wrong planet. <laughs> right? Wow. So <laughs> God, God is not like me kind of goes up and down. Like the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today and forever, right? So he cannot ever stop loving you and he cannot ever change how much he loves you. He just is love. He just loves you. He could no more not love you than you can just not exist or not be yourself or not be who you are. Uh, now, the cool thing about love, we talked about the fact that last week truth is a noun, right? Like it's its, its own thing, which is why it's weird to kind of say that it's a person. But love is more than just a noun. We use love to describe a feeling. And we also use love as a verb, right, which is a doing word. It's an action word. I, I marry a lot of people because I'm a, I'm a wedding celebrant. And one of the things that I always say when I marry people is, hey, love is an action. Like love looks like something, right? Who's seen Notting Hill with Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant? It's actually pretty good, right? Like it's a pretty good film. And at one point, she, she stands there and she says, she says, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love me. So he loves a verb, right? Like what does that mean, asking him to love me? Like that looks like something. Uh, funny though, if you Google, because I did it this morning, if you Google, I'm just a girl standing in front of, the first thing that pops up is a salad asking it to be a pizza. Um, <coughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's there, but that one pops up. You know, so love is, is a verb, right? It's a doing word. And my point is that if you love someone, it should look like something. Like there should be evidence and proof that someone loves someone. Like Kira, if Abel loves you, which he does, you should be able to tell that he loves you. Right? You should see it in action. He does nice things for you. What nice things does Abel do to tell you that he loves you? Uh-oh. Gives you a hug. Great job. That's, that's good. Yep. What about you, Liz? What nice things do you do to tell me you don't take notes in service? Oh, you are taking notes. Ah. No, I haven't said anything overly interesting, apparently. There's only three things on there. Let me see your notes. What does it say? Spinach, cheese, milk. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right, but like love, love looks like something. Like, there should be evidence that if God is love and God loves us, it should look like something. And so I could, I could point out the obvious fact, right, that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. John 3.16 says that the whole reason that God gave us Jesus was because He loved us so much. So the proof that God loves us is the fact that He sent Jesus, right? And the proof that Jesus loves us is the fact that He was prepared to die on the cross. In John 15, He says, no greater love there's, there's no greater love than uh, you know, laying down your life for one's friends. 
And he said that knowing that he was going to go to the cross. So we know that God loves us. We know that Jesus loves us. The Bible is filled with all sorts of verses about the fact that you know, we are loved by God. But I wanted to just left field it a little bit this morning. Just give me five minutes. I wanted to just left field it because I said to God, what do you want to talk about? Uh, and he kind of highlighted this. One of the ways that we can know that God loves us is that he disciplines us. Right, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, it says, My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. Why? Because the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects those in whom he delights. See, the Bible says that in the same way that a good dad will discipline his children, God is a good father and he disciplines us, but we can't get uh, upset about it, right? Like we can't reject what he's doing. We can't get all our knickers in a twist about it because it means that he, he loves you, right? Now the writer of Hebrews makes this comment. They say no discipline seems pleasant at the time. <laughs> no lie, right? But painful. Who here was smacked as a kid? A lot of the older hands going up. Big hand there, yep, smacked, right? How many times as a kid were you getting smacked by a wooden spoon thinking this is enjoyable, you know, I'd like to do this more often, right? This is a pleasurable experience, you know? I, I hear about some mums, I've got to be careful because my mum's in the room, but uh, I hear about some mums and they were like, you just wait till your father gets home. My mum was not like that. Was your mum like that? She was like, I'll handle this myself. <laughs> right? and, and, and us kids were the ones like, we're just going to wait till dad gets home. Right? Like a wooden spoon. And then just when you're like, you're like, ah, oh, this hurts so bad. Then your parents say something like, you know, this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. <laughs> and you're just like, golly, like, whatever. You know? I believe that if you weren't giggling so much as you did it, right? Like, like pain, like discipline is painful at the time. But later on, it produces, look, a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Check out this verse in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. It says, those, so this is Jesus talking, right? It's red letters in the Bible. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be enthusiastic and repent. And I just want to look at these words real quickly, because that first word rebuke, it sounds intense. Like it sounds like, oh man, God is so mad at me. Like I rebuke you. You know, it's almost like you should be holding a cross and I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Like it sounds like this real intense thing. But the actual Greek word that's used there, like it, it literally means to, uh, to bring conviction and also to convince. So when you look at the Greek word, what it kind of implies is that God comes along and he doesn't, he doesn't just point his finger at your gene and go, mate, you're stuffed up. You're in so much trouble. Bend over. Like it's not what God's like. He comes along and he says, hey, this is not, this is not a good idea. Like, what you're doing is not healthy. And then he actually brings an understanding of why what you're doing is unhelpful. Right? Why what you're doing is not the best for your life. And so a conviction comes around you that I, I shouldn't be doing this. But then also a, a convincing comes around that I know I shouldn't be doing this. And this is why I can see why this is a problem for me. And then after that, God moves on to the discipline. And that sounds painful. Like a lot of us, if I said, hey, negative or positive response, discipline, you'd probably go, I, that's more negative to me, more negative connotations. But in the Bible, 
this word is translated in other places to train like a child, like to educate, to come around and support and say, hey, I'm going to teach you how to do this. It's the same word that Luke uses in Acts chapter 7 when he says Moses was fully trained in the royal courts and educated in the highest wisdom Egypt had to offer. Now, how many would look at that word and go, well, Moses was fully trained and go, well, that's a negative would look at that and go, that's awesome. That's a real positive. That's the exact same Greek word that is translated discipline there. So another way you could say it is, you know, those that I love, I come along and I say, hey, this isn't a good idea. I bring an understanding around why you shouldn't be doing this. And then I fully train you to do the best that you can do, to live the best life that you can live. Now, how many people go, that sounds awesome. Like, I'd be on board with that. And that's why the very next line, he says, so be enthusiastic and repent. Because he's speaking to a group of people that didn't want this. Like in Proverbs chapter 3, when it says, don't reject my discipline. You know, don't be upset. Like we have a fundamental misunderstanding around what it means when God comes along and says, hey, we need to work on this area in your life. What it means is that he loves you, that he wants to train you and equip you for the best life possible. So be enthusiastic and repent, and that word repent, you know, it gets thrown around a lot in church circles, but you've probably heard it before. The actual definition means to change the way you think, to completely rewire your brain, to make a 180 degree turn. You know, I was walking this way, I was focused on this, I was acting like that, and then I repented, and now I'm going this way. I'm doing the complete opposite. I'm living out of the opposite spirit. Now, sometimes repentance can look messy because with that change in mindset comes a revelation that maybe we've been hurting people or that we've been hurting ourselves and there's pain and there's grief associated with that. And so sometimes repentance can look like tears and snot and a lot of time on the floor and it can be quite a long process. Other times, not so much. Other times it's just an internal like, oh man, I've been doing that wrong. I need to change the way that I do it. So this verse says, hey, God's going to come along. He wants to equip you. He wants to train you. He wants the best for your life. And now that you understand that, be enthusiastic and change the way you think around discipline, around God's correction. Does that make sense? Right, so God is love. God is love. Love is discipline. Discipline is to be trained and corrected. God is love. Now what I want to do this morning, I know that last Last Sunday, I said, hey, break into groups and try and find your own nugget of gold and what I had to share. But this morning, it's very clear, right? We need to understand that God's love means that we get God's discipline. But that discipline isn't like a hopeless, you know, smack and there's no redemption. It's like, hey, I've got a plan for your life. I've got a purpose for your life. I want to show you where you can do things differently. And I want to work with you and train you to be the best that you can be. So right now, I just get the band to come back up. We're going to sing one more song. But what I want you to do is just close your eyes. Get into your own space. And just as the band starts playing for the next two or three minutes, I just want you to ask God, hey God, what is one area that you want to bring correction in in my life? Or what is an area that you've been trying to bring correction and I've been shutting you down? I've been rejecting it because it's too painful. I've been getting upset that you keep bringing it up. Maybe I've even been interpreting it as, if, as you don't love me. Well, God, I want to retrain my brain. I want to repent. I want to turn my thinking around. And I want to say, okay, God, I see now that, that you putting your finger on this, even though it hurts when you touch it, it's because you want to see me healed. 
You want to see me set free. And so I want to accept your help. So just as the band starts playing, just spend some time with him. And I believe that he's going to highlight for you, for all of us, including me, an area in our life that he wants to just work with us on.